welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Hello, Martyr She Wrote listeners. I'm just going to start calling you martyrs, okay? So, Today's episode is pretty exciting. I I know that I um, say this every week, but I'm especially excited about today's because uh, the person I'm interviewing is actually somebody that I grew up with and who has experienced a very specific kind of religious trauma that few can relate to. And so I will let him introduce himself. Caleb Adams, welcome. Tell everybody uh, why you're here. Well, I'm here because we we know each other. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually uh, grew up, um, didn't know each other that well when we were overseas, um, but we're both uh, uh, children of missionaries. We were missionary kids uh, over in a, Southeast Asia in a country called the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's how we grew up. And I think that, you know, there's something that's uh, kind of unique about the missionary kid experience because you kind of, you know, wake up into it, your consciousness as a child, you know, into the world, you wake up into it and you think, well, this is just normal. You know, this is how families live and this is what everyone's life is like. And, and then you realize that, you know, in the country that you're in, uh, you're not normal. You're not part of that country. I mean, certainly, you, you'll have relationships and you'll have a connection to that country. Um, but you're always going to be separate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and also when you go back to your home country, <laughs> you're not necessarily part of that world either. And so you're kind of waking up into a bit of a void um, and your really home space gets defined by your family and your family's purpose. Um, and your parents boss is Jesus, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The almighty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you're this family kind of in this little rowboat out in the world. This is family unit. Um, not really a part of everything. Um, certainly connected to the expat community, the, the missionary community, but again, everybody's purpose is, is kind of God. And so, um, if you have an issue with that or when, you know, when there's times where you feel scared or you feel alone or you feel, uh, you know, manipulated into going along with things, um, you just, you kind of give up a lot of autonomy and control because um, that's just how you survive in that experience, you know, but we went to a school called uh, Faith Academy and uh, I went to Faith Davao and then Faith Manila, which was private missionary kid school. And so everyone else is kind of going through the same thing. And uh, the original question you asked me is, why am I here? Uh, you know, why am I on a podcast about religious trauma? Um, I think that when you grow up in that environment, um, church is every moment of every day. And it permeates every thought and every part of your body and your mind um, because it is your family's purpose. Um, It's very different than growing up and going to church on Sunday and going to a secular school during the week where you might have friends who are 
non-believers, you know? Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So unraveling all of that, unraveling all of the sort of tentacles in your mind and, you know, all the purity culture, how deep that goes. Um, and, and sort of the, the guilt and shame within your own thought processes to really conform and adapt to whatever system you're in. Um, I think that that takes a lifetime to kind of unravel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and just from my end, you know, I wanted, like you said, we, we grew up in the same place and we went to the same school to faith Academy, but we weren't in the same class and we weren't very close, but you kind of came on my radar this year because mm-hmm. you've started your own podcast um called Life Unwasted and yeah. it's it's about the missionary kid experience particularly missionary kids who went to Faith Academy and you know as i started like listening to those episodes i was like holy crap there is such a overlap here um, and even though life unwasted isn't necessarily about religious trauma, it's kind of unavoidable to talk about being a missionary kid and not talk about the traumatic experiences that we went through in the name of our our parents' beliefs. Yes, I I'm glad that we don't do video when we record the podcast because I do I do cry every episode. Um, it brings up, it's hard to explain. There's this universal experience a lot of us talked about uh, senior year. Uh, you know, we had our graduation and then we had our graduation party afterwards. Um, and uh, this was in Manila, Philippines, which is a very large, is the capital of the Philippines. It's a very large city. And we were at the top of this hotel, <laughs> which sounds fancy. It, it really wasn't fancy. And uh, throughout the night, as as people had to, you know, grab their bags and go to the airport and leave, um, they get in the elevator and that was it. You know, the elevator doors would close or they would eventually close around you and and then your friends would be gone, you know. And now um, you mentioned uh, this uh, project we're doing uh, myself and Cuban Jang, uh, who uh, is, is he, you know, he's in Korea. I'm in, in Michigan and we're usually interviewing someone that's somewhere else in the world. Um, that experience of when this high school experience is done, I'm never going to see my friends again for 20 years that, uh, went really deep and none of us really reached out for a long time, you know, maybe to a couple of people, but it was really here 20 years later that we're all kind of reconnecting and, you know, what, why is it that all of us came back and just walked away? We just left it all behind us. Cause it was, it was so painful to lose your entire world. Um, yeah. Well, and I feel like we were taught that that attitude of attachments are temporary, Yeah. you know, like, like connections with other people. It's like, make the most of it while you have it. Cause it's temporary and it's going to be gone. Yeah. And like, you better not expect anything permanent. You better not expect anything to be yours. Mm-hmm. You're right. When we all graduated and scattered, it was just like, yeah, I guess I'm on my own now. I'm totally alone in the world because that's what I've been raised to expect. Yeah. Everything from my entire childhood, uh, 
you know, fit into two suitcases uh, when I came back. Um, and that's because, yeah, you kind of live this, this transient lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family. You know, I want to make sure that I paint a holistic and accurate, you know, uh, a picture of my parents. Um, but my dad is from Alaska. Uh, when he went to University of Alaska, he was a logger and he found Jesus there. So he flew down to Oregon, left the airport, left his wallet and his keys and everything at the airport and just started walking um, and uh, was like, God's going to show me where to go. Or at least this is the story that he tells. And he ended up at a Jesus people commune for a number of years. He graduated college and then went to uh, seminary and met my mom, who had been a missionary in Kenya uh, for a number of years. And they ended up at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And someone that came back from Kenya kind of like arranged their marriage, you know, because he's like, you know, Barb, you're too old. What? Yeah. Yeah. Barb, you're too old. There's this guy in my class. You've got to meet each other. So they did prison ministries. Okay. So you're starting to see how like all they're all in on this, like they're doing prison yeah. ministries. Uh, but that was the life that they wanted to live, you know, full in, full in service. Um so then they ended up uh, getting commissioned and going to the Philippines. Um, they're both ordained ministers. They both had a master's degrees in divinity. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my brother was born in Michigan right before they left. And then they came back to have me in uh, Ketchikan. So I went to the Philippines when I was six weeks old. And then my sister, five years later, uh, she's Filipina. And uh, we went to court and, and adopted her. So, you know, the three of us uh, kind of all landed in there. And so as a family, we just had this idea. I think us kids had this idea that like our, our parents had masters in divinity, you know, like they're biblical scholars. Mm, yeah. And my dad especially was just all in on, you know, spiritual warfare and we're here to, you know, bring Jesus in, in not, not a talk about Jesus kind of a way. Like, you know, my dad is a speaking in tongues pastor, yeah. um, uh, told us growing up about, you know, demons that were outside the walls of our house. Right. And, uh, he would go far up into the tribal regions and he'd come back and tell us stories about, you know, the witch doctors and he would fast and pray every year for like, like 40 days and he'd end up looking like a skeleton. But at the end of it, he would tell us, Oh yeah, there was this witch doctor up in the mountains and you know, the Lord moved through me. And, and now the witch doctor is dead, you know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. 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 Like multiple situations like that. And I'm like, like life and death stakes. Yeah. Yeah. At, the, at that time it was, yeah. Life and death stakes. And, and now I'm thinking like, like, did you go up there and get some witch doctor killed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not sure you were the good guy, you know, like maybe you should have just left those folks alone. Right. Like what business of it is yours to go up there and cause that level of disruption in, in tribal areas? Like what hubris, um, what was, what was his like role where the, was he planting churches or, or what, um, you know, we, started off urban church planning. Um, and my dad had seen kind of the Southern Baptist model, uh, at Mount Carmel, uh, there in Mindanao, uh, you know, the Southern Baptists, being good Southerners, uh, went to the Philippines and they were like, you know what this place needs mm -hmm. a plantation, 
Um, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it needs some good colonization. No. Yeah, yeah. No, to to be fair, um, they uh, they started a, a training center, a school to teach um, uh, sustainable farming methods because there's a lot of slash and burn uh, farming methods in the Philippines that kind of devastates the landscape and causes a lot of erosion. And so the Southern Baptists had set up a agricultural school. Mm-hmm. So my dad, my dad saw that and he thought, that's the model. No. That's what's up, you know? So in, on the same island in Mindanao, we had a, a agricultural school called uh, Elam Farm in a very remote part of the Philippines. I mean, there wasn't even a road mm. that went to the farm. You'd park along the side of the road and then you'd follow a, kind of a goat path uh, for like a kilometer or something. Um, and we farmed mangoes. And we, uh, you know, planted mangoes, uh, copra, which is like um, um, the meat of a coconut that you extract the oils from for essential oils, Um, a lot of tropical fruits and things like that. Uh, But yeah, you know, it's like hot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when you spend your summers up uh, swinging a bolo or a machete um, uh, up there, you know, there were a lot of snakes. and uh, that was the least dangerous thing that was in that area. You know, one of the things about the southern part of the Philippines, especially in the early 90s, uh, was there was um, the, uh, it was on the State Department terror watch, watch list for as long as I can remember. Yeah. So our farm was situated right beside a Philippine Army base on one side. And then on the other side, there was a mosque and there was the uh, Moro, uh, Liber- uh, Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Um and then on the other side was the New People's Army, which is the um, the communist rebels. So, you know, there were times where we were like going out to the farm and they're like, you can't come. There's helicopters um, strafing the hillsides with rockets. So don't don't come <laughs> like, oh, OK. <laughs> All right. All right. What what did you make of of those like really scary, unsafe experiences? Was it just kind of this is normal, you know, or. Or was it like, this is not normal, but we're doing this for God. And so like, it's worth it. A mix of many things. Um, I think, you know, I've only realized now some of the impact that it had many years later, you know, um, but there's a mix of many emotions, that, com- complex emotions that you grow up in a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were, we live behind uh, cement walls with broken glass on the top. Um, you know, there were security guards, um, but you also drove through very dangerous streets. Um, this wasn't like a state department lifestyle where we lived in the green zone. You know, we, our churches were in rural areas with dirt floor and in kind of a roof, you know, just, just very, very basic, uh, churches. And, you know, that's, that's where we are. Our, that's where our ministry was. Um, my dad had a sense of invincibility, mm. you know, uh, so we kind of, uh, you know, I like, oh, well, that's God, you know, God's protecting our family. Well, at the same time, at, you know, there were people outside our walls, like watching our comings and goings because kidnapping white kids was like big business. I was told that many times, even as a, as a young kid, because you get a lot, you know, I had blonde hair and blue mm-hmm. eyes, which is a very exotic look. So you get a lot of butt pinching in public. You get a lot of cheek pinching and yep. I can't say the number of times I had my cheeks pinched or my hair pulled yeah. <laughs> by curious strangers. Yeah. Yeah. N- not in a malicious way, um, but just a, like, whoa, that's weird or that's different. Um, 
uh, and I, you know, I have, I have uh, curly hair and it was much blonder at the time. And, and so a, a lot of people in the church and my parents would say like, Hey, you're like number one on the list of people that they get kidnapped. You're a target. Here. Yeah. And there's people watching the house, you know, there's people outside the walls, like watching our house. Um, so, uh, but, but at the same time, um, the Philippines and back then, you know, the eighties and nineties, there's a huge difference between growing up as a privileged white kid and uh, the, the kids who lived on the street, literally outside of our house, like on the street. Mm-hmm. And you do internalize that, that difference that like, kind of like I was saying earlier, you're not, you're not really a part of this. You're, you're an other everywhere you go, you get a- attention in that, like, wow, like, whoa, it's a white person. Um, oh, you look like backstreet boys, you know? Uh, I don't, (laughs) but, but you, you get those comments. And so everywhere you go, there's this, a bit of like privilege, but that's juxtaposed with, you know, abject poverty. Uh, I remember, um, an image that still stuck in my head that, uh, my siblings and I talked about recently, you know, there was a garbage dump in, in Davao called uh, smoky mountain Mm. because it was on fire. And it was where the garbage was dumped. Um, but there's people that lived in Smoky Mountain. Uh, there's children that lived in Smoky Mountain who would make their houses out of the garbage and would make their money recycling whatever they could find. And I, I still remember the kids, you know, they were born in the garbage dump and probably died in the garbage dump in a really, really terrible, awful situation. And when short-term missionaries would come over, our family would come over from the U S my family would drive up there with them. And I'm glad that we did because most Americans can't fathom it. Yeah. But also it's a, it's not a tourist stop, you know, like we, we get out of the car and walk around and look at the poor people. And we always did it. I think with a level of respect, but I don't think that that's, a, th- a thing that you do. One of the things that I definitely learned from my parents was to be all in and to serve others. Now, I certainly differentiate and understand that uh, instability <laughs> in your family is not ordained by God. You know, you don't have to run the minivan of your family uh off a cliff with the tires burning to prove something to an eternal being to be a good person. And I think that my parents felt that they needed to, you know, everything was about the mission. And they would say, Oh, you know, if you kids ever want to come home or if you, this isn't for you, let us know, you know, you kids come first. But like I said, you're, you're kind of in a, in a rowboat (laughs) and you're out to sea and if you're like, hey, let's turn around, it's not an easy thing. And you all know that. So it's, it, as a, especially as a kid, it's not really an option to say, let's pack up our bags. Let's leave our life here. Uh, my siblings have to leave their friends and we're gonna go back to the US where my dad doesn't have a job and we don't have a house and we don't have anything, right? Yeah. And so after, after college, I uh, went into nonprofit work and um I work at a really cool uh, nonprofit social enterprise that does government contracting. 
and uh, we provide employment opportunities uh, for a lot of folks uh, who are marginalized, have barriers to employment, very similar to a Goodwill. And what I love about what we do, it's very similar to the intent of, of Elam Farm um, and Mount Carmel, uh, teach skills that, uh, real, that people can use to have upward mobility and, and to have agency. Because when you, when you get a paycheck, that gives you freedom. It allows you to decide where you live and who you interact with and what you do in your free time. And so I love that my whole professional career has been really focused on agency without strings attached. Hmm. Right. Yeah. My brother and sister and I were talking recently with my mom. This was within the last couple of months. And we were talking about Elon farm and one of our original farm managers who um, she was kind of updating us on his whole situation after he managed the farm and he learned, you know, all there is to learn about um, uh, sustainable farming methods. Uh, my mom said, Oh, he bought land. He got rich. He divorced his wife. He got a new young wife. And then his, his uh, a previous wife had died. And my mom said it was uh, his children said it was from a broken heart. And then my mom said this comment and I didn't reply, but I wanted to so bad. She said, that's the dark side of helping people because you help somebody to learn how to do this. And then they just take advantage of you and they go and live a sinful life, you know? And I thought there's the strings, you know, there's the strings, right? Like, why can't you just teach someone? Yeah for the sake of, of empowering them and, and giving them a better life, that person still has to live with the consequences of his decisions. And in this case, you know, he thought that this new life for him was going to be amazing. This guy is probably never going to see his kids again. Hmm. What I love about what I do now is that I have the opportunity to help people build their own life in their own way, you know, in their own value system. And certainly um, you know, I, I, I'm also a licensed professional counselor, but I haven't seen clients in many, many years. I'm a nonprofit administration. Um, but I always think from a cognitive behavioral lens and, mm-hmm. you know, we want to create an employment experience, and a, a program experience where people learn, uh, to get along with those around them and trust their coworkers and have a good relationship with their coworkers, trust their supervisor, uh, to believe that their life is going to get better someday, that the world is a generally good place and that there's hope and opportunity. Um, and then to believe, to have pride in themselves and their own work and their own agency to be able to um, chart their own path in life and to have that feeling of self-worth, right? Those are the things that I would want to instill in folks versus that's the dark side. Once you give people autonomy, then they have free choice and they have free will and they're not under your control anymore. And it's like, like, that's how I felt growing up. You know, all of these kind of tentacles of control, ensuring that I was going to conform to a system um, that I didn't really, it's very hard to leave. It is. Well, and I, I, I like that perspective that you were just talking about of like, empowering people to experience the rewards or the consequences of their choices and not needing to control what that looks like or where they head, you know, and I'm not 
pushing my beliefs on them and then also assessing my value based on how much they accepted it. Yeah. How do you think those tentacles of control impacted you maybe even after you left the mission field, like after you graduated? Well, I, I think, I think I was raised by and around a lot of adults um, that didn't know how to solve relationship issues. I think that there's just kind of this, like this Jesus wall of like, when you're having a relationship problem or a marriage problem or, or whatever that is, you just pray about it. Mm. You know, um, when you're having uh, depressing thoughts, well, just, you just pray about it uh, instead of actually teaching critical thinking skills or, or teaching relationship skills. And, and so when you, when you started asking questions about like uh, what's the difference between God and magic um, the very forceful answer is, is faith. You know, just, do you not have it? You don't have faith. Well, if you don't have faith, you're going to hell. And so like, when I think about how I was made to feel growing up in that system, I was made to feel like from birth, uh, there was like some sin in my life. You know, I'm just naturally, my natural state of being is sin and I'm always going to be sinful and I have to atone for sins that sins that I haven't created. I mean, if, if I've done something to somebody and I deserve to feel guilt or I deserve the consequences of my behavior, then I deserve it. But it kind of, you're made to feel like there's just something deeply wrong with you. So you're constantly trying to please the people around you. And so that leads to conforming, you know, and when you get to the point where like, Hey, you're asking questions that are outside the bounds of what you're allowed to ask, then very quickly, uh, you kind of get hammered and back into place. And, and, and so this, this like critical thinking stopper of, well, you just pray about it, or that's Jesus. That's where God comes in in order to control you. They wound you. (laughs) And then, and then they try to sell you the medicine for it, right? That was a wound that was created there in order for those systems of control to work. Right. You don't need the cure unless you're wounded. Yeah. And is that overt? Is that calculated? Is that? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that I saw a normal human tendency, which is um, I grew up in this system of control. I was made to feel helpless. I was hurt. I was spiritually abused. And so that's just the way it is. And I'm going to do it to you. Now we talked about this project. We were doing this podcast called life Unwasted, And I, my, my parents knew about it. I don't, I asked them not to listen to it because it's, it's, I just, I don't really want to have that conversation with them. And their response was kind of like, well, everybody had a hard do. Yeah. I had a hard, your dad had a hard, we don't talk about it. And I said, well, maybe you should, maybe you need to go to counseling, you know, (laughs) because (laughs) when you say, uh, yeah, that happened to you, that happened to me. I'm like, but you were the one doing it. So uh, why aren't you breaking the, that system of abuse? Um, Why aren't you breaking that system of, of control? Like when I think about my kids today, I have two sons. I want them to feel what I didn't Mm. feel which was that I was accepted for who I was, you know, and I want them to feel 
like they have power and autonomy and, and choice and really feel that it's a weird thing being a missionary kid, because uh, I don't know what your furloughs were like in the U S but it was, it was a lot like child labor for yes. me. Yeah. You get packed up in a car. Cause you know, the church says you can go, but you have to raise your support. You know, you got to go beg people for money. Yeah. So our territory was, uh, I think between St. Louis and the Poconos. And so, um, we would come back to the U S every four years and then we'd get in the car. Sometimes we'd have a pop-up tent and we would drive and hit every church camp in between St. Louis and the east side of um, Pennsylvania. And every couple of days you're in a new place. And I wouldn't say the the kids at those church camps were like super nice. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they were. Most of the time, you know, you're kind of a weirdo. You're an outsider. Um, You don't know any of the jokes. You don't know what to talk about. Um, you know, they're talking about TV shows you've never seen. And so it's just this feeling of, again, kind of being in this, this little island with your family and there's kind of nowhere to go. <laughs> I remember like my parents would always bring a, a bunch of artifacts from the Philippines, like shells yes. and carvings and, yes. you know, like pictures and stuff. And they would like lay it out on table at the front. And I always remember like standing next to the table of like artifacts and just feeling like I'm just another thing yeah on display yeah like I'm I'm another demonstration of what their mission is all about and I I just need to stand here and not look like I'm irritated and not look like I'm bored and then apparently that's what God wants from me yep it, it's hard not to feel like a phony when you're passing out dried mango and banana chips. Yes. And my parents would bring a coconut, half coconut shell with the husk on it. Um, and they'd say, Oh, what is this? Uh, and everyone guessed what it is, uh, but it was actually for shining the floor. It's what you use for waxing the floor. So you put your foot on it and it was like half a coconut. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we play uh, traditional Filipino music. And we had, we had brought some bamboo over from the Philippines. Teeny clay. So that my brother, Tinkling. Yes. The traditional dancing. So it's us like a couple of white kids just, Mm -hmm. you know, appropriating the national dance of the Philippines in such a phony and performative way. Yeah. I always felt bad for pastors kids. I don't know about you because they had to do all the same crap we did, but they didn't get to live next to the beach, you know? So true. I mean, and in the Philippines, I mean, my parents, I think, made $27,000 a year combined. Actually, it was that's an interesting story because my mom was technically not even employed by our mission for many years, most of her adult life, even though she was commissioned and sent. She was a woman. But she's a woman. Yeah. But it also <laughs> means you're not eligible for SSI or SSDI um, if you don't pay into Social Security. So the, our mission ran into that when there was a uh, African missionary uh, wife who got a brain tumor oh my goodness. had to come back and was going to go on disability and realized she never earned a paycheck her adult life. Even though she was an ordained minister, the mission set it up so that only the pastor was an employee. And that's the way it was with my dad. Even the, and my mom didn't really even question this. Ugh. You know, she was an unpaid volunteer with a master's degree out on the mission field for the majority of her professional life. 
that just brings me back to what you were talking about earlier, where like that all in feeling of like, the more I sacrifice, the more that I suffer, the more that I give up, like the, the more devout I am and, you know, like the better witness I am. And, and I feel like it's, it's almost, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you tell yourself, like, if I'm feeling miserable, if I'm feeling depressed and exploited, then I must be on the right track. It's like self-flagellation, but you're setting it up, you know, well, we're just going to trust God. Well, also you can have a plan. Like that's a, you can also have a plan. Yeah. And you can like demand some dignity. (laughs) Going back to my parents' wages. The reason I brought that up wasn't to brag about my my parents uh, and how wealthy they were. Um, It was that 27,000 in the U S is, is like your school lunch kit, free lunch kit. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Philippines, we lived with a lot of white privilege and um, we lived better than some other missionaries, you know? And I think my mom made a dollar go a long way, but in the Philippines, you have a lot of status. So you kind of, it's odd because you grow up not rich, <laughs> not even middle-class, yeah. but you also grow up with a lot of opportunities and a lot of status, um, especially in that, you know, I mentioned when you walk around, everybody treats you like, whoa, it's a white kid. Oh, he's got curly hair. Oh, he's got blue eyes. You know, there's a bit of that as well. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really fit anything. I remember wanting so badly to just hide and blend in. Like I was just so desperate to blend in. And it was so weird when I came back to the States. I don't know if you experienced this, but it was like, I don't even know what to do with myself right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to the U S was really, that was hard. That was much harder than going over. It still is hard. Even, even 20 years later, you know, you, you never really uh, fully, fully adapt. Um, and so reconnecting with folks from our childhood is a bit of, of connecting with folks who share a, a cultural identity. Yeah. I think it's also connecting with survivors because we all went through the same experience um, in a school. And I want to talk a little bit about that school. It, it was a very evangelical school where there was harsh discipline for uh, the minorest of infractions. And I remember being made to feel like I was a bad kid, like I was a stupid kid, I had a learning disability, which didn't help that. But uh, I was made to feel like such a terrible kid. We were like such good kids. And when I say the, the smallest infraction, um, there was a situation where my, my roommate, I, w- I went to boarding school. That's a whole other set of traumas we could, we could talk about. Uh, but you know, this is a school where a lot of the kids were, were dorm kids there. My family lived on an Island 500 miles away. And so from ninth grade through 12th grade, uh, I was a dorm kid. Uh, other dormies started when they were like six years old in the dorm and their mission wouldn't even allow them to be uh, with them on the mission field. They were a distraction and they weren't even allowed to homeschool their kids. So they would start at really young ages. And my roommate, um, one of the other guys in his class uh, sat on his lap during lunch because there wasn't anywhere to sit. A, a teacher saw it and gave him detention. 
right? For for one kid, because it was a, a display of of like you know sexual. It was sexual in nature, sitting on another boy's lap. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So what was so what was suspension? Um, they were building a new building at the time, and uh, they had to mix cement after school with shovels. Like, you know, like just pour bags of cement and water and gravel on the ground and mix it up and, uh, you know, start forming cinder blocks or whatever they were doing. Hard labor, hard labor and like 90 degree heat, you know, with like 90% humidity. I mean, in their school clothes, like you had to wear collared shirts and you had to dress up for school a little bit. So like that was, that was the punishment for sitting on another person's lap, which is just insane. Faith Academy definitely was sort of it's its own animal because it was so isolated. You know, it was just like missionary kids who all had parents that believed the exact same things and all wanted us to believe the exact same things. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a recipe for conformity and control. Yeah. So I think, especially when you're in boarding school and all the adults around you, uh, oftentimes they were just trying to work on their own mental health. A lot of them were short-term missionaries uh, and it is, you're never prepared for the mission field. A lot of short-term missionaries burn out. They never come back. Uh, and long-term missionaries, are like they have to find a way to survive. So everyone's just kind of working on their own mental health. And so the kids oftentimes are an afterthought and uh, we all need to behave because your parents are doing, you know, super important work. Mm-hmm. So when I think about that today and how that's impacted my life and the various levels of, of spiritual abuse and religious trauma that I've had, um, I'm grateful for some of it. Some of it I still have to work through, but I'm grateful for some of it because it made me think. It made me think if these people were really Christians, they wouldn't do this. Mm. And the more I step back, the more I realize, well, then they're probably not Christians. I'm going to take a step back further and really evaluate this Christianity thing. Do I really believe this? Or is it because I'm not allowed really truly to leave this system without losing all my relationships, you know? Yes. And so it took a good decade, you know, it was into my late twenties, early thirties before I really, really deconstructed fully. And, uh, you know, started calling myself uh, an agnostic, mm-hmm. you know, and just saying, I don't really know. I don't know the answers in life, but, um, but there were consequences for going down, down that deconstruction route. There were relationships that ended and there were family members. I mean, I it was only maybe three weeks ago, I admitted to uh, one of my cousins uh, who I was really close with that uh, I wasn't a Christian. I mean, we've been avoiding this conversation for like a decade and it was a four hour long phone call of him kind of screaming at me and telling me that I'm stupid and immature and uh, that I hadn't thought things through and, you know, trying to convince me um, otherwise. And it's like, yeah, why, you know, like, why can't you just let other people be who they are? I think that what you're talking about, though, is is such an important element of religious trauma is that it it pushes us to deconstruction because it it destroys the trust and safety that should have been there. Yeah. You know, and and the, the trust and safety that we were even told we were supposed to be feeling 
Yeah. But yet circumstances were completely unsafe. Yeah. That's why I'm so passionate about addressing religious trauma is because I know that religion is a beautiful thing for a lot of people, but I also know that when it gets toxic, it destroys people, Mm -hmm. you know, like it destroyed me. Like I, I only barely now feel like I'm a whole person again. Yeah. Agreed. And in in our podcast, we interview all kinds of MKs. Some of them um, are agnostic like me. Many of them are, are, you know, believe very strongly in their faith. And I deeply respect that. And we're able to have really good conversations uh, around faith, really respectful conversations. The types of things that I, I don't think, the types of conversations I don't think that our parents understand that they can have and that everything's going to be okay, you know, that that I can be who I am and it doesn't somehow threaten you or something. I don't, I don't really know. It just is such an important piece of the puzzle is allowing yourself to explore that stuff. I'm so glad that you have and that you've encouraged so many other people to to do the same. It's hard. It's hard. And especially questions about the institutions themselves. Uh, I think that the generations that came before us naturally want to protect those institutions. Um, It was interesting as I moved into nonprofit when I was in my 20s, um, it kind of blew me away how many layers of protection there are for people receiving services. There's abuse hotlines, there's investigations, there's audits, there's, there's so much in place to ensure that at all levels of the organizations, there's, there's ways to report and there are very clear processes and systems to investigate. Mm. When I was in boarding school and, you know, this is like a bunch of dudes in a, in a dorm together, like 20 dudes in a dorm together in high school with very little supervision. Um, there was a lot of physical abuse. There was a lot of emotional abuse. I can't think, I don't know who I would have told that to, Yeah, you know, I, and if I told my parents, then they'd pull me from boarding school and I'd go back and be a weird homeschool kid, you know? Uh, so like, like where were those systems? If you really cared about your kids, right. If you really cared, um, uh, about, uh, the people in the church, there would be hard. You would always be asking hard questions about the institution itself. Mm. And when religious organizations want to investigate themselves, I mean, come on, that's so, that's so outlandish. I mean, organizations don't investigate themselves. Well, I look at the military, you know, like when they conduct their own investigations, it's always in the interest of the organization itself. Mm. And so I, I think that that natural skepticism of the role of the organization policies, equity within the organization, um, nepotism within the organization, it is a lesson that I've learned. Uh, I'm, I'm part of our executive team and we really, we have this philosophy that we, we don't fall into the good guy trap, which is, well, he's a good guy. He probably would, you know, he's, there's nothing to hide, you know? Yeah. He had good intentions. Yeah. 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 He's probably a good guy. Uh, we are not going to look too hard. Um, we don't do that. You know, uh, we commit very strongly to strong independent investigations for any allegations of abuse. Mm-hmm. And that builds trust within the system and that builds um, empowerment. And I think that I'm overly intentional about that in my role now, because it's not something that I felt, you know, I felt like 
like the system was so much more powerful than me. Yeah. How can you question that? How can you make an outcry of abuse or mistreatment to people who are dedicating their lives to God? You know, it's, it's almost like it's a Trump card that none of us ever could come close to contesting. Yeah. If we really are humble servants, then that means constant self-examination of how we're treating ourselves and how we're treating others. At the end of the day, um, you have to get really invested in making sure that at every level of the organization, there's training and there's accountability and there's resources and, um, and just be a, I'm sorry, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just be a fucking grown up about how you approach your job, you know, like you certainly have a belief that the world is going to be a a better place, but fucking plan, you know, like this, this just jumping into things. And, and I think, you know, my, my father in particular, um, had some narcissistic tendencies there, some grandiose thinking and kind of jumped our family into a lot of like, really sketchy situations, um, really dangerous financial situations. And we just kind of said, well, you know, dad, so convinced that God is talking to him, you know, dad is so all in on this. It must be true. You know, it must be, it must be, um, my feelings of, of like, why the heck are you doing this? Um, must be misplaced. You know, I must be sinful because I don't trust my dad. I don't trust God. I need to pray about it. Right. My anxiety is definitely a sign of sin, not of like survival. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. And I don't want you to get the, the picture that everything about being a missionary kid was absolutely terrible. There, there's really awesome thing. You know, I, I mentioned we grew up near an ocean, near the beach. Um, and mangoes. Mangoes are the best. Absolutely. You could just You just can't get them here. No. They're not the same. They're not. They're absolutely not. I mean, there's definitely things like that, 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 that I miss, but I don't know. It's, it's so complicated when religious trauma is mixed in with your upbringing. It, it is hard to pull it apart. And I think, I think that's why your podcast has been so meaningful for me to listen to is just hearing that same experience echoed over and over by every guest it challenges the narrative that I've been telling myself my whole life, which is that I'm alone. Yeah. Yeah. That that's often how I feel. It is very affirming to hear other people talk about the overly critical voice in their head. Um, There is this abuser that's in my head that was created there. You know, your voice is really that self monologue is really created by the people around you when you, when you grow up and uh, my, my inner monologue. And I always thought I felt very bad, very guilty about this terrible inner monologue that like, you know, you're never good enough. It doesn't matter wh- how hard you work and how much you've achieved You're, I don't know, like uh, it's never, it's never enough. And I hear other missionary kids talk about that. And, and that voice was put there. And this other other voice that that um, always telling you that you're 
super sinful and your thoughts are sinful and this and that. And you can't trust yourself. Um, just trying to influence your behavior. Yeah. You can't trust yourself. And you can be made to believe a lot of things when you're grown up being taught magical thinking. Um, I believe there there were demons flying around our house at night, you know? Yeah. Once you start believing in magic, then, you know, anything can be real. Like, who am I to say, I don't like this. I want to go back to the States or um, this doesn't work for me because like, again, you know, your, your parents boss is Jesus and yeah, it leads to some very dysfunctional behaviors. And I'll, I'll tell you about one um, that's very embarrassing and, and only further kind of solidified my connection to the church. When I was in, in high school, you know, my dad wanted to live this big missionary life. And so there was like a, an entire year. I think my entire junior year of high school, I never saw him. So I was in boarding school, but normally you go home for Christmas break, you go home for spring break and things like that. Um, and my dad was traveling or he's in a Cambodia or he was up in the mountains. Um, and, and so there was about, I think about 14 months or so that I never saw my dad, no email, no phone call. And somehow my senior year, I started writing my dad about like spiritual warfare stuff about like, like I'm having these dreams and like, and then all of a sudden he starts emailing me. Mm. All of a sudden he starts paying attention to me. You said the magic words. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we're, he's sending me all this stuff on spiritual warfare and I'm praying and I'm having all of these vivid nightmares and things. And a lot of it was, it was my senior year. And I knew in, in like, you know, eight months, I was going to be leaving all my friends together. And I was dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety, uh, some major depression and a lot of mental health stuff going on, but I just needed my dad to freaking see me for once. Um, unfortunately it was all based off of a lie. You know, I started just, it was like Stockholm syndrome. And then once I said it, you know, once I said, like, uh, I, I'm seeing these things or these things are happening. Well, then, then you start trying to convince yourself it's true. Cause you said it, you know? Right. And it took me a long time to just admit, like, I just made all that up. Cause I was looking for attention from dad and I felt so guilt. I felt like such a fool, but that shame of being so in on the lie, um, just to feel connected or to get some kind of validation or attention when it was all said and done, I had so much anger for my dad and I still do. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. That's devastating. And honestly, I, I deeply resonate with, with that anger too. I, I've been there. I think that story is something that so many people can relate to who have been in religious abuse, that idea of pretending in order to feel accepted and to, to feel validated. And then just being so ashamed of it afterwards. Like it sucks. It sucks. It does. But I'm my own person now. And so you know, at this phase of my life, um, working through that anger. And like I said, it's still there. It, I, I still have to learn how to move on from that. And as a result of that, you know, I don't really have a relationship with my dad and I don't know that that's ever 
fully possible, but who knows, you know, life's a crazy thing. Uh, I just, I'm never going to develop a relationship on those terms again. Yeah. And, um, I'm not playing pretend anymore. We're, we're grownups and we can at least be honest with each other that all of that was just baloney. Yeah. And you get to call it what it was. It was trauma. Yeah. Man, what a powerful story. Listen, at the uh, very high risk of giving our listeners whiplash, we do need to wrap up. Yeah. So with all of my guests, I'm trying to, you know, end on kind of a lighter note. So is, do you have any stories of like church culture or like anything that happened on the mission field that was just funny or ironic that maybe people would find interesting? You know, uh, growing up in the Philippines, in the Philippines was, was, was a little nuts. Um, there, there were some crazy things that were just part of your life. Um, when we were kids, uh, one, uh, one of the guys who was working for us caught a monkey um, and uh, he had put out a Coke bottle and he put a centavo in it, like a penny. Mm-hmm. And uh, the monkey, baby monkey came down, grabbed that, grabbed that centavo, couldn't pull his fist out of that, that Coke bottle. And uh, that's how you catch a monkey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Um, so we had this monkey. What was his name? His name is 2J. I think I wanted to call him Jerry and my brother wanted to call him another Josh name. So my dad was like, well, there's two J's. So we'll call him two J. And he was, he was the worst pet that (laughs) ever existed. I mean, monkeys are just terrible. Um, But he was on our, we had a piece of bamboo between two trees in our yard and he was kind of chained and he had a ring and he'd go back and forth between on the bamboo and we'd run underneath him and he would jump down and jump on our head and like bite us. And we like bleed all over the place. Um, <laughs> I've then, heard that monkeys are just the worst pets. They're it's just the worst, just the worst. Um, so then uh, he like got an infection in his tail. And so like we had to amputate his tail mm-hmm. and then we had to like tie up his arms uh, so he wouldn't pick it, pick at it. And so then we just had a monkey. <laughs> running around our yard like a monkey in a what what's that thing called a straight jacket <laughs> uh straight jacket yes yeah a monkey oh, in a straight no. jacket so he'd run around and he'd run up to a tree and he'd just jump at it you know like but um he would always be catching these lizards uh these little tiki lizards and he'd shove them in his mouth but he'd never eat them he'd just like keep them in there and they'd writhe around in his cheeks um yeah. one time we turned on our popcorn maker it was one of those air pops and there was a lizard in it and that lizard got like all oh, no. burned and stuff. And like, it was still alive. So we like gave it to two J <laughs> and he put it in his mouth and it's just like, like, you're supposed to kill it. And he just like, let it ride around <laughs> in his mouth. Sorry for all you non-missionary kids out there. The Anna is yes. laughing. That's the appropriate response. I'm sure all uh, of you are cringing. Like, why are you so cavalierly telling this story? Yeah. And, and I'm like, because no one, yeah, no That's one can why. tell a because... horrifying story and laugh about it like an MK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, like at the same time in the Philippines, there was like, you know, there were like, you know, helicopter gunships going over. Sometimes you hear mortars in the distance. You'd lose power because the communists yes. were attacking. You know, in the big scheme of things, like this was a, 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 a mm-hmm. funny thing. This was comic relief. Um, you were getting to the traumatic part. Um, so anyway, 2J, he wasn't a great pet. So 
I had told that story on the podcast and my brother heard it and he texted my mom and this was like a month ago. And he said, mom, whatever happened to 2J? Because my, what I had said on the podcast was um, my parents had sold him to somebody in the church who owned a furniture store. And there were a lot of guard monkeys that guard, you know, furniture stores. Right. Um, and, and I don't know if you remember all the guard monkeys that guard furniture stores. I do not remember that. Yeah. Neither do I. Guard monkeys? <laughs> no, neither do I. And so it dawned on me a month ago. I don't think that's what happened. And so my mom texts back and she said, I'll never tell you what happened to your monkey. Eaten. And all, you know, for 20, well, for 30 years, I had thought this monkey was guarding a furniture store and had lived out his life, you know, um, guarding the Ottoman. <laughs> and my brother, my brother said, did you, you know, did you like put him down or whatever? And then I forget what my mom said, but it was so final. She said, you know, I, I will, I will never tell you um, what, what happened to your monkey. I think that's when she said, you know, I'll never tell you what happened to your monkey. And I thought about it all day and I texted my mom um, back. And I said, uh, mom, I know what happened to, to Jay. Dan put him in a rice sack and beat his head in with a hammer. That's oh, what happened. No, And that's because that's what my dad did with all of our pets when he needed to put them down through these big, like rice sacks. And he, you know, he would just clobber them with a, I mean, this is a guy that grew up on the frontier in Alaska. Okay. That that's, that's my dad where he came from. That's why I wanted to start with all that. Well, my parents gave our pets to people who would eat them, you know, like, well, that happened to <laughs> snowball. Oh no. Snowball. Snowball. Yeah. Yeah. That happened too. Oh. Uh, so my, then my mom just replied back and she said, no comment. Or 2J. Yeah. That's probably most likely that's how 2J was. The really end a, of 2J. <laughs> I don't know. It's not really a funny story, but it's, it, it is funny to me because the end of it, the most traumatic part of it. And I've told this story a million times. And I took my brother asking that one question, <laughs> wait a minute. I've never seen a guard monkey in the Philippines. Oh, you were, you've been gaslighting me for 30 years. And I think that is a bit of what this process is, this deconstruction process and this reevaluation yeah. of our childhood, because Sometimes it takes another person, like another person to say like, well, that's weird. Or that doesn't make sense. You know, like poke a hole in, in that theory. Yeah. Like, wait, what? <laughs> and then your entire childhood is like reevaluated, re you know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. That was like full circle. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this has been such a great conversation. Caleb, thank you for, for being vulnerable enough to talk about this stuff. I think. A lot of MKs will listen to this and feel very heard. Absolutely. I want to thank you. Um, actually talking about these things out loud uh, is not something I've ever done in this kind of a format. Um, and that was really hard. I want to thank you for creating a super safe space. I want to thank you for all the academic research and actual research that you've done about this. And uh, you've sent me so many materials. Um, that have been so useful and your podcast, I got to listen to some kind of pre-releases and some other things that you're working on. Uh, I've listened to them all twice now, and it's actually giving me words and a framework uh, to be able to um, continue to process these things. So thank you. Good. I'm so glad. All right. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye. Bye.